Welcome back to the KPL Podcast. I'm your host, Jagisha. This week on the podcast, I talked to best-selling author Dolan Perkins Valdez. We talk about her latest novel, Take My Hand. This is based on the true story of Mary Alice and Minnie Lee Ralph, who in 1973, at the age of 12 and 14, were surgically sterilized without their consent in Montgomery, Alabama. The family responded with a lawsuit that challenged the U.S. Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, exposing a vast federally funded campaign of sterilization of primarily impoverished people. This was an eye-opening interview for me, and I learned a lot. Let's get started. Listeners, today on the podcast, I have Dolan Perkins Valdez, and we are going to be talking about her book, Take My Hand. Well, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, so to start off, give us a summary of the book. Tell us about Take My Hand. So it is a historical novel set in 1973, inspired by the true life events surrounding the Ralph sisters, Mary Alice and um, Minnie Lee Ralph, who were just 12 and 14 years old when they were sterilized by the federal government. My story tells the story of a nurse, Sybil Townsend, who was charged with the care of the Williams sisters in my book is their name. And the aftermath of her knowledge that this happened while they were under her care. So let's talk a little bit more about Sybil. I found her to be a fascinating character and I loved just her her thought processes and, and her anguish at what had happened to these girls. So she based on a, an actual person or how did you how did you create her? No, she's not based on an actual person because I couldn't find records of the nurses who worked at the clinic. Mm -hmm. And I was very curious about them. I was curious who they were. I was curious how they lived with themselves in the aftermath of this. She's really an explanation of my own curiosity, which had to do with how one reckoned with this tragedy. Mm -hmm. And what brought you to the story? How did this come about? It really was me. It started with me following my nose. I was just curious. I had learned a little bit about the Ralph family story over the years, just from, you know, them appearing for a moment in documentaries or in, you know, a new story here or there. But I didn't know much about the case when I began to research and I discovered that it was such a big deal at the time. You know, it was in every major newspaper. Mm -hmm. They were on the evening news. They had testified before Senator Ted Kennedy in Washington, D.C. Um, and so I was really just surprised the book hadn't been written before. Mm -hmm. And when I learned that it hadn't, I knew it was a book that I wanted to write. And so really, yes, I was just inspired by the significance of the moment. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because I had never heard of them or, you know, any of this story. And you mentioned Tuskegee in the book and what had happened to the men 
Um, so for listeners not familiar, Tuskegee was a study that was conducted, not sure exactly the group, but these men who had syphilis were not given the proper medication and they were trying to study this disease, even though penicillin was perfectly available and they could have been cured. And they were not given the cure. And I didn't learn about Tuskegee until I was in college. And it's surprising to me that this was also not mentioned considering how big of a story it was. Yes, I think about that all the time, about how it's possible that I went through, you know, secondary school, that I went to college, that I got a master's, that I got a PhD, and I never learned about this case. That's stunning to me. And a lot of readers um, say, I think somewhat guiltily, like I had never heard of this story. And I just want them to know, don't feel guilty. I was an Afro-American studies major at Harvard. (laughs) You know, I have a PhD with a focus in African-American literature and history. And I didn't know. Uh So this was really something that I think was sort of willfully swept under the rug Mm-hmm. by, I don't know who, I don't know who willfully swept it under the rug. Maybe all of us did, maybe as a society we did, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, I think it's stun. It's a stunning omission. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit more about the, uh, the research that you did. Were you, you said you weren't able to find the nurses, but how, I imagine there was a lot of documentation since it was such a big story. So what did you learn and what was the time period like? Like, how were people feeling when this all came out? Well, I don't have any record of how people were feeling. I mean, if you talk to a local Alabaman who lived in Montgomery at this time, Mm -hmm. um, some of them knew about it. Some of them didn't. It it was, um, you know, it was a time of great change. Um, It was a time where access to information was different than it is now. Mm -hmm. But I will say that it my primary source material were the newspapers. I was able to pour through really just dozens and dozens of newspaper articles, particularly the Montgomery Advertiser, which is the main newspaper in Montgomery. But I was not able to sort of gauge what people thought at the time. The only thing I knew was that it was a big deal. And I knew that It had come a year after the discovery um, of the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. It had been broken by a reporter from the AP. Mm -hmm. And then this came the next year. So, you know, this is a time of great change and turmoil. I don't know what people's um, sort of ability to handle all of this news was. But I will say that... Um, Joe Levin, the, uh, the the lawyer who fought the case, originally filed it on behalf of the Ralph sisters. But when he discovered that it was happening all over the country, he dropped that original lawsuit and filed a class action suit against the federal government mm-hmm. because he learned that tens of thousands of women across the country had also suffered the same fate. Yeah, the numbers I found were staggering. 150,000 women were sterilized without their knowledge. It was very, it was mind-blowing to me that this was happening or without their permission, I should say, not their knowledge, but their permission. That's right. I mean, I will say that for some of them, maybe it was without their knowledge, right? Like you go Mm -hmm. in and you think, you know, um, you know, maybe you are having a C-section 
and you don't know what they're doing down there, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and, you know, they perform some kind of tubal ligation. I mean, there, there were a lot of really sort of um, ways in which women were coerced. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, and some of the women to whom this happened were immigrant women, perhaps who um, didn't speak English as a first language. Some of the women who this happened to were in prison, incarcerated women. Um, some of these women were uh, women who were told they were not going to receive their benefits if they didn't agree to the procedure. There were all kinds of ways in which women were coerced. It's it's quite mm-hmm. sad, actually. Yeah, yeah. Especially, and it's very timely considering what's happening right now and uh, with Roe versus Wade and, and all of this stuff happening. And it's like, women still just don't have the freedom for their own bodies. And that blows my mind. It is. It, all of these conversations that we're having, whether it be about the history of forced sterilization, whether it be about, you know, access or um, the history of birth control and, you know, who had access to what birth control and who were targeted for long-acting contraceptives, whether it be about the decisions to terminate a pregnancy, whether it be about women's desire to have safe and affordable childcare, all of these different conversations are linked and mm-hmm. you really can't have one without the other. You can't talk about the Dobbs decision without talking about these other things too. Mm-hmm. And then you can't talk about these other things without talking about the Dobbs decision. Mm-hmm. So part of what I've been saying to women who have been talking to in book clubs and in groups that have been reading the book is that what we're talking about is has long been termed reproductive justice. Mm-hmm. And you know what we're talking about is a larger conversation. And it's really important for us not to allow other people to define the contours of that conversation so that it's only about this one thing or that one thing. Mm-hmm. This is a really this is really a larger conversation about our bodies and our healthcare. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, definitely agreed. Uh why did you decide to write this as a fictional story versus say a nonfiction? You know, it's interesting. I get asked that question all the time. And I guess the best thing I can say is that like, I don't write nonfiction. Uh So when I'm looking at something and when I'm researching it, I'm often thinking about what I'm often thinking about, what are my questions that the historical record doesn't answer? Uh You know, I feel like fiction is an opportunity to pose questions that a journalist can't pose that a um, you know, historian can't pose, uh-huh. you know, and to actually offer up an answer to those questions, right? A possible answer and a possible sort of consideration. And I think that to me is sort of like the beauty of fiction that I can imagine. You know, you asked me like, what did people think at the time? Well, you know, if I can't find the people who can tell me what they thought at the time, I can certainly imagine the answer to that question. And 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 the mix of feelings that people would have had, yes, saddened by what happened, but also, you know, Alabama had been at the epicenter of a lot of, you know, bad things mm-hmm. <laughs> in that period. Yeah, actually, and I, I think when you wrote it uh, or reading it as a fictional story, I think it had greater emotional impact for me. So. I really, you know, I, I felt more for the little girls and cause you got a sense of a person, you know, you, it's more of a person versus when you, I think read it as a nonfiction where it's, it's, 
it's far away. You're not as close, I think, as you are when it when it's fiction. You're more. It's more relatable in a way. So even when you talked about the nurse, Mrs. Sager, who had was the one responsible in your story for the girls getting sterilized. I mean, I was even able to empathize with her and see maybe what her point of view was. Yeah, I do think that is one of the benefits of fiction, that it does allow the reader to transport themselves into that situation. Although I think, you know, in all fairness, really good narrative nonfiction can do the same thing, um, not to take away anything that they do. But um, yeah, I, I think I think each of these medium, you know, so like if you think about film and if you think about fiction and if you think about nonfiction and if you think about, I don't know, um, poetry, if you think about visual art, right, the impact that photography can have on us, for example, all of these things can appeal to us in different emotional ways. Mm -hmm. um, but I, but I do, I would say, really appreciate um, the importance of fiction. And I, you know, when I speak to fiction writers, I often tell them, do not, do not underestimate how critical your work is in shaping conversations about the world and in, you know, affecting people's minds. Like, you know, we are important too, right? And I think we have to remind ourselves of that sometimes as fiction writers, because we don't, you know, we don't necessarily get all of the um, rewards that maybe, I don't know, people in the movie industry do or something like that, right? Like we don't have an Oscars or anything and most writers aren't wealthy and most of us aren't social media superstars. You know, mm -hmm. we're at home in our pajamas all day long, but yeah, I, I just, I think it's important. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Absolutely. And it's nice to have, you know, these, it's nice to have these particular stories told that I think are, is left out somehow in our curriculum. So to even just to have that no matter what, and in, in whatever medium that it's told, I think is, I think it's a good thing. I agree. What about the dual timelines? Uh, why did you decide to write in, I think it was 1973 and also 2016? Yeah, so originally it wasn't a dual timeline. Originally it was all set in 1973, mm -hmm. but I had a narrator who, um, you know, us writers call like a two-headed narrator or a reflective narrator. So I had like the older, wiser Sybil was there in the story reflecting on what happened. And every now and then she would, you know, poke her head up out of the story and one of my readers, one of my early readers said to me, I really like it when that older civil sort of pops her head up and opines on what happened. You should do that more often. And so I said, okay. And I go back to it and I'm trying to figure out like, when do I do it and why do I do it? Because I had been doing it sort of subconsciously. Mm -hmm. And then one day I wrote a new chapter. Mm -hmm that was the what is now the first chapter where she's speaking to her daughter and i didn't want to bring in a whole contemporary sort of daughter but what i wanted to do was to speak to the reader more directly so i had been poking up that head and i thought okay if i pull out civil from 1973 and i create this sort of shadow figure character her daughter that would allow me to speak directly to the reader 
Mm-hmm. Because I think part of what a dual timeline does in historical fiction is that it allows us to make connections between the past and the present as writers and as readers and as people you know, who consume historical narratives. And so I thought having the shadow figure of the daughter who really is the reader would allow me to tell the story directly to the reader, which is what I was sort of hoping to do all along. But this allowed me to really turn to the reader and say to them, now I know you think that, 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 that you know, mm-hmm. and so it really allowed me to have civil speaking to the reader. And then I created the car journey mm-hmm. of her returning to Alabama, which my editor helped me to figure out. Cause I knew that like, I needed to kind of show why this really, why and how this really affected her for the rest of her life. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that was really great. Cause I, I like that it, that she went back and she was visiting all the different individuals that were involved at the time. And I just, it was kind of like a nice little closure, I think for me, as I, as the story finished, what do you hope readers take away from the story? Well, in the back of the book, you know, my call to action mm-hmm. was um, to ask people to just spread the word about the story, because I just wanted people to know about what happened to those sisters. They're still alive. And I want people to know that these women made the ultimate sacrifice, not only in terms of going through what they went through with such dignity and without allowing it to destroy them, but also in terms of being the face of, you know, allowing this class action lawsuit to happen in their name, you know, being the face of the court case that really will change the landscape in terms of these family planning clinics. Um, So my, my original call to action in the book was to ask people to just spread the word about the story. And, but right now I've been asking people if anybody's listening or, you know, you never know um, who's in the audience that I really think it's time for a presidential apology for the Ralph sisters and for the women who were victims of forced sterilization at the hands of the federal government in 1994, the victims of the Tuskegee syphilis experiment were issued a presidential apology by Bill Clinton, Uh but the women have never received an apology and I would like for that to happen. So those are sort of the calls to action that I have right now in terms of just the book itself. I just hope people um, will think and consider what it means to have good intentions and to do things to try to help people and how we might be really careful about the power that we wield in other people's lives when we're trying to help them and, and just know that we should also be listening to people and we should be talking to them and we should be, you know, interacting with them, you know, in a way that is respectful. Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. Yes. I think Sybil learns that as she's going through everything with the girls. So, um, so what's next for you? What are you working on uh, for your next book? Well, right now I am waiting for the paperback to come out April 4th. Mm-hmm. And 
Um, I'm going to travel a little bit more for that. And I do, I, but I do also have a novel manuscript that I'm sort of simmering right now. Um, and, you know, all I'll say is that it's set in North Carolina and it is uh, another dual timeline novel. Okay. So it's another historical uh, based Correct. on, based on a real story. Correct. Okay. Well, I look forward to the next one and uh, Thank you so much for talking to me today and just telling me about this book. And I really enjoyed the story and I will, I am telling as many people about it as I can. So taking your call to action and letting them know. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I really appreciate that. Readers are powerful. We can, you know, we can change the world. We can, we really can. It's a powerful thing to read a book. Absolutely. And we need the writers to write these stories and and tell us about things that we have missed. Yes, I agree. That's our show this week. Thank you so much for listening. Join us next week when I speak to author Rachel Hang about her new book, The Great Reclamation. I'm going to leave you with a quote from the Declaration of Independence. Governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Until next time.